Good morning. The passage I'm reading comes from Revelation 2, and I'll be reading verses 1 to 7. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds and your hard work and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people and that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you, but you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in paradise of God. Thank you. Thanks, Kevin. Morning, everyone. I also want to read to you one of the letters to one of the churches, the last one in Revelation chapter 3, verse 14. Where's Michael? Good catch. Outstanding. Why is it doing that? Is it that one? No, don't switch them off. I'll sweat up here, I'll die. My daughter told me after the first service, I was, she was standing over there, sitting over there. I went down to her after I'd preached the message and she just leaned across and she whispered to me and she said, it's as hot as Hades in here. I said, sweetheart, I've never been to Hades, but if you say that, it's as... <laughs> we picked my daughter and her husband, our son-in-law, and their gorgeous little daughter, our granddaughter, up from the airport yesterday. And it's only right and appropriate for me to say that she is the most beautiful and the most intelligent little granddaughter that anybody could ever have. And if you met her, you would agree with me. Amen? Amen. <laughs> I'm her grandfather, so I'm her papa, so that's my job. I have to do that. And if you're a grandparent, you have to do that too. Say that about my grandchild, that is. The letter to uh, the church in Laodicea and Revelation chapter 3, verse 14. To the angel of the church in Laodicea, write, These are the words of the Amen, <clears throat> the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say... I am rich, I have acquired wealth, and I don't need a thing. But you don't realise that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich, and white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve for you put on your eyes so that you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. 
If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to eat with that person and they with me. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat with my father on his throne. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Amen. Let's pray. Once again, Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your word that you have blessed us by speaking and communicating to us and preserving it for us in the Bible. We thank you for the presence and gift of your spirit, the one who inspired the written word and the one who now interprets it and teaches us it. And we ask that the Holy Spirit might be pleased to speak to each one of us today, to enlighten us, to open our eyes to see truth that we might have our lives aligned with your will and your purposes, that the Lord Jesus might be the focus and centre, that he might be the one who is our head, that he might be the one who is lived out in us and is glorified through us. Heavenly Father, these blessings again we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Kids Club are working through the book of Revelation. And so we have aligned our teaching with Kids Club. Today they're looking at chapters 2 and 3 and so we're going to have a bit of a quick look at these seven letters as well. And next week we'll do chapters 4 and 5, I think it is. And then the next week after that they'll jump ahead to, um, I think it's 19 to 22, maybe all in together. And we'll slow down at that point. We'll do 19 and 20 and 21 and 22. So it's sort of like we're doing the beginning, we're doing the end and we're jumping over all the hard, difficult stuff in the middle. Uh, but maybe on another day, another time, maybe at night, we'll come back and we'll do a series. And particularly on this section, on these seven letters, they deserve much more focus than we have time for to be able to give them this morning. And we have done that over the years. But I learned something this week that I hope I'll remember to share with you. That... No, I'll tell you now. <clears throat> About... 40-something years ago, I became a follower of the Lord Jesus. And one of the things my dad used to say to me was, he wasn't sure Jesus was real or existed, he said, Jesus never wrote anything. He never wrote a book, he never wrote a letter, he never wrote anything. There's no proof, therefore, physical proof, that he ever existed. And for the last 40-plus years, I've been sort of repeating that as well. I've had other people come to me and say, Jesus never wrote a book. And I would go, yep, that's right, Jesus never wrote a book, never wrote a letter. Then this week... I just suddenly realised something that I hadn't seen in 40 years. You're never too old to learn, are you? <clears throat> Sorry? No. <laughs> what are the last words of Jesus to the church? You had asked me that question last week. I would have said uh, the Great Commission. Go into all the world, make disciples, baptise them, teach them everything I've commanded you, lie on with you, end of the age, the Great Commission. That's what he repeats in Acts chapter 1 where he raises his hands and he's blessing them and he ascends into heaven. That's the last words recorded of the Lord Jesus. Wrong. The last words of Jesus to the church are the words I just read to you and that Kevin read. The last words of Jesus to the church are Revelations chapter 2 and 3. Jesus never wrote a book but he did dictate these letters. These are the letters of Jesus to the church. Not the letters of Paul, not the letters of James or Peter or any of the other apostles. It's the letters of Jesus to the church. So we should focus upon these letters. We should take very serious attention of them, as indeed we should, because they're in scriptures. But these are especially 
Jesus' communication to the church. So this morning what I want to do, normally when I do a sermon, you know, you look at a passage of scripture and you analyse it, you uh, put it together with various points and application and stuff and, uh, and then we come along and we deliver. It's like making a cake and it's all prepared and delivered and it's iced and it's got a, maybe some cherries or lollies or something on top to help it go down. Well, today I'm not baking a cake. Today I'm going to present to you the flowers and the egg and the water and the vanilla essence or whatever it is you put in your cakes. Uh, ground up banana, I guess, if it's a banana cake. Whatever. You're getting the ingredients and what you need to do is go home and you've got to bake your own cake. Does that make sense? So you've got homework to do. That's what I'm saying to you. So I'm going to give you a fair bit of the ingredients and we'll have a look at the first letter, the one that Kevin read to us. We'll have a look at that. But I'll give you the tools because this requires far more time and it won't be wasted. It won't be wasted time. It'll be invested time. And tr I trust through that and hope through that the Lord Jesus will certainly open your eyes and help and speak to you about our church. These letters are not given for us to compare other churches with. They're written for us to listen to. Now, having said all of that, why is it seven letters? Well, perhaps Pastor Charlie alluded to this last week. I'm not sure. Um, <clears throat> these seven letters are chosen. There are other seven churches are chosen. There are other churches in this particular area of Turkey. They are on the, uh, the eastern end of the Mediterranean Sea. And this particular area, part of uh, Turkey, modern-day Turkey, Roman province was called Asia. This particular centre is quite both a very rich area, lots of rivers, lots of roads, and significant ports. So any trade from the Mediterranean would arrive at these ports and be carted then on the roads across to the east and vice versa. From the east, if it wanted to go west, they would come through this section. So there was a lot of trade. When there was a lot of trade, there was also a lot of Jewish people. And there were very large Jewish communities in each of these towns that were going to be referring to or are written to. And what's significant is that in history, there had been a change in the Christian church of how the people saw them. Is this echoey? It seems echoey. Hello, hello? <laughs> um, there had been a change. When Jesus was a Jew, the apostles were Jews, the early church, many of them were Jews. When Gentiles started coming into the church, and so when Jewish people in the synagogue became Christians, they would then meet with the church as well. And what happened was, um, how to explain this? The Roman authorities had outlawed any new religions. There was enough religions and they didn't want any more. The one people who got an exemption to that were the Jewish people. All the religions in the world had to comply with certain rules and regulations except the Jews. They were just very difficult to get along with and particularly their Sabbath rules made them unlikely to ever join and be faithful soldiers in the army and and so on. They got taxed, but they didn't have to do other things. And so here were people setting up Jewish synagogues and meeting places in all over the Roman Empire. And part of that is where the gospel went. Whenever Paul went to a town, he went to the synagogue or he went to where the Jewish people were, presented the gospel to them. People became faith. They started a church. The church was riding on the back wings of the Jewish people and the Jewish people hated it. That's why when you read through the New Testament, you'll often find the main opposition is coming from the Jewish people because they know what's going on, but the Romans couldn't tell the difference. That the new Christians looked Jewish, 
had Jewish names. They used to go to the Jewish synagogue. Oh, you people are just Jewish. Okay, you can have your church because they just thought it was Jewish. By the end of the first century, after AD 70 in particular, the Rome started to discover, oh, the followers of Jesus, the followers of the Nazarene, the Christ one, are not Jewish. Therefore, they are not legally allowed religious societies. They are illegal. And so there started to come about persecution. And one of the main proponents of that were the Jewish people who would actually dob in to the Roman authorities, the names of the people who used to be worshipping in the synagogue but are now Christians. So as you read through these letters, you'll pick up that theme, that it's the people who call themselves Jews but they're not real Jews and they have betrayed you and so on and you've been persecuted. And people were starting to die. Something else that was happening at this particular time was the Roman emperor was uh, Domitian and he is the first one, he's in the 80s and mid-90s, into the 80s and 90s as the Roman emperor. He was the first one who enforced emperor worship throughout the empire. It started back in the days of Nero, but it was localised. It would happen there, it would happen over there in the empire, it would happen over there, but it never happened everywhere. It's just like today, we have um, people who become quite enthusiastic fans of particular, whatever, uh, bands or groups or celebrities or whatever, and they follow them and they gather together and they cheer and they almost worship them. That's this popular uprising of support. Well, that's what it was like with Nero. There was this popular uprising of support and declared him to be divine and worshipped him as God, God in the flesh. Um, and the empress, of course, take it to their heads and become proud and arrogant. Domitian is the first one who says, this is now going to be a rule throughout the entire Roman Empire where everybody, on one day of the year, you will go to a Roman temple, uh, Caesar worship, and you will take a pinch of salt and you will offer it on the altar of uh, incense or whatever and you will declare, you will confess, Caesar is Lord. Your name will be ticked off and you can go on with your business. So people would queue up, go in, grab a pinch of salt, Caesar is Lord, see ya, and off they would go. And Christians, of course, couldn't do that. They couldn't say, Caesar is Lord, because Jesus is Lord. And Lord is not just like master, uh, boss, it's, not, it's a much stronger divine word than that. It's saying, Caesar is God, Caesar is divine. And the Christians are going, no, not. But the Romans, when you said, no, he's not, they heard that as political treason. You're a traitor. You're opposed to Rome. So therefore, into prison with you. And you weren't imprisoned for a number of years like we do it. You tend to be put in prison with a preparation for the fact you're going to be killed. You're going to be executed. So many of the Christians were either had been arrested, were awaiting execution, had been executed. And if you read through these letters, you'll find out that that's going to get worse. It's going to continue because it's still in the reign of Domitian more than likely when this book was written. And John was one of those people who, because of the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, was confined to this Roman Alcatraz, this Roman rock prison called the Isle of Patmos, chapter 1 of Revelation. And it's while he is there on the Isle of Patmos, John says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. Now what's interesting is that Domitian, the emperor, when he picked one day in the year when everybody throughout the empire would have to turn up and have their name marked off the roll and offer their worship, on the one day of the year, he called it the Lord's Day. 
That was the day when everybody declared that he was Lord. And of course, John couldn't do that, didn't do that. So he was seen as a political traitor. He was confined to Alcatraz, the Isle of the Rock Island of Patmos, which is about 60 miles out to the sea from where Ephesus is. Uh, and it was on the Lord's Day, on probably, if it's, that's correct, on the day everybody else is worshipping Caesar, that John was in the spirit and he saw who the real Lord was, Jesus. And he has this magnificent encounter, this vision of the glorified Jesus. And it's that person, that Jesus in that vision, who says to John, I want you to write these letters to these seven churches. Why these seven churches? Well, for various reasons, and they're probably all true. Written to seven churches because maybe that was the postal route that the Roman uh, post office delivered letters in. Maybe it's the royal route. It is a significant route. If you follow it, you get a Bible map, your atlas at the back, you'll see that it goes in almost a horseshoe, almost a circular way. It heads north, then it comes east and then southeast and comes then south again. And Ephesus ends up about same latitude as Laodicea. They're about the same. And then they're connected by rivers and roads. And there's all rivers running through this and transport and everything else there in fact in the Persian Empire going back hundreds of years the Persian Empire in fact built a road from Persia all the way across to Sardis it's called the Royal Persian Road for trade purposes and I think I've said to you I don't know what I've said to the 830 now what I've said to you but the trade would come that way and then head east and that way and head west I told you that didn't I <laughs> nod grunt groan shake your head don't remember didn't I say that to you no so here is John, island of Patmos, instructed to write to the seven letters, and the seven letters are seven significant cities, and these seven cities are not only on this circular route, each of the seven cities have a temple to the Roman emperor, every one of them. Perhaps that's why it's selected. Why is it not some other churches? Because there were other Colossae, Troas, and uh, Miletus, and other churches we know of that were around at that time and in this area. But seven is picked more than likely because seven is a significant number in the book of Revelation. The number seven stands for, symbolizes completeness or fullness. You know, the entire whole. So when you write to the seven churches, you're writing to the church. You're writing to the whole church. Jesus is not just communicating to the church in Ephesus. He's communicating to the church in the world and the message for Ephesus and the others down to Laodicea is for us as well. He's communicating to us, which is why each of the seven letters concludes with a statement that let those who have an ear hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches, plural. So the letter was written. It was never, they were never sent as seven separate letters. They're always put together. They're part of a book, the book of Revelation. So the book of Revelation is sent. It's read aloud in the public hearing of God's people. And they probably did do that in their gathered worship services like this. If you've never done it, let me encourage you to do exactly that. Maybe this afternoon or another day or next weekend. Take the book of Revelation. Find about an hour and a half, two hours. Takes about an hour and a half. And read the whole lot. Beginning to end. Don't stop. Think about it, imagine it. You know, you're going to get lots of questions of what does that mean? And well, just keep reading. Read it like a novel, and you'll get the overall big impression. Jesus wins. That's the message of the book, written to the churches 
throughout the entire world. The Lord Jesus is the sovereign Lord and regardless of what's going on in the world or regardless of the state of the church at the moment, he will win. He will um, sovereignly triumph. He will execute his will. So seven is the number of completion. Seven are significant numbers. Uh, seven cities are significant ones. And so John writes seven letters as directed by Jesus to these seven churches. Now, there is a pattern in the seven letters that it's been observed over the years and some of you will be familiar with this, I'm sure. Firstly, there is a pattern of seven within each of the letters. Seven letters and each of the letters has seven parts. It's not infallible, but it's very close to the mark. There are seven parts. And so here's an exercise that I think would be helpful for you to do. I know you can't see this, but it'll give you the rough idea. Have seven columns on a piece of paper. Write the names of the seven churches across the top. And then down the side, write these seven words or these seven phrases because these are the seven parts that appear usually in each of the seven letters, certainly five of them. And it's when you do this pattern, you start noticing something. Notice, can you see the blanks here? There's nothing written in there. So I'll explain that very quickly as we go through. But here are the seven things that you might want to write down as you look at. Can we look at Ephesians chapter 2 on the screen? That'll be helpful. Ephesians 2, 1 to 7. And then as I name what it is, then you can see it actually in that letter that we'll come back to Derek as soon as he can. The first one is the address. Each of the letters begins with, write to the angel of the church in... Ephesus or Smyrna or Philadelphia or whatever. Write to the angel of the church. Can't Derek do it? No, he can. Thanks. To the angel of the church in Ephesus. Right. Question, before we go any further. Who's the angel? Write to the angel of the church. Some people think, most conservative commentators think, it's actually an angel. A spirit being, that each church has an angel and the angel reports to Jesus. That's how he does his work in the world, through angels. That's a truism. My difficulty with that is I don't think that's the correct interpretation because why would Jesus write a letter to an angel and tell the angel particularly what are the errors or the mistakes, the problems in the church that the church has got to fix up? It's not the angel who reads the letter out. So the angel doesn't fit for me. And the angels are without sin and holy and so on, so it doesn't fit. The word angel means messenger. So who's the messenger? Write to the messenger of the church in Ephesus. Let me cut to the chase. Let me tell you who I think it is. To me. I think the angel is the in my words, senior pastor, or he's the pastor of the church in that locale, in locale. He's the guy, the person who is in charge, in a sense, as far as Jesus is concerned. He is the one who is going to be held accountable what goes on in the church. It's not him by himself, but he's the leader amongst leaders. He is the, the elders. And we know in the church in Ephesus, there wasn't one pastor. We know there were several pastors and we know there was a group of elders because in Acts 20, Paul met with the elders from the church in Ephesus and he counseled them and directed them. So we know there was a group of elders, plural leadership. That's a New Testament truism. But amongst those leaders, there is often one who is responsible to lead. James in Jerusalem, 
and the angel of the church in Ephesus. So there's an address. That's the first one. I better hurry up. Number two, there is an attribute. These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. There is a, in each of the letters, a description of either the titles or the attributes of the Lord Jesus. How many titles are there of the Lord Jesus in the Bible? Answer, 250. And what Jesus does here is he takes some of the titles, some of his attributes, and he says, I am the one who does this. He's reminding the church of a truth about him, whatever situation they find themselves in. And that in this case, he's the one saying, I am the one who holds the seven angels, that's the seven senior pastors, in my right hand. They are my servants. Notice they're not named because they're not important. They're messengers. Jesus is the one who's important. They are simply passing on the truth that he gives to, for the church to learn and follow. Jesus has them in his right hand as his servants. Jesus has them in his right hand in terms of uh, his authority as well as his protection. And he walks among the lampstands because he examines, he's the foreman. He is the one who communicates, are you doing your job that I wanted you to do? And as you look at Ephesians, you'll see what his response is. So there's an attribute of the Lord Jesus. It's worth listing those. Um, then five times out of the seven, there is an approval, a statement, a positive encouragement. I know your deeds, your good works, your perseverance. I know you cannot tolerate wicked men or people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles, but in fact they are not. I know what you're doing. I know what you're like. I know what's good about what you're doing, and I want to affirm you in it. So there is a approval. Fourth thing in most of the letters is an accusation. Nevertheless, there is something not right. There is something I have against you. There is something you've got to fix up. Five of the seven churches. Uh, number one, two, three, four, five is advice. There's a direction. After Jesus has given some sort of um, correction to the church, he then tells them, how do you fix it? For the Ephesians, it's remember, repent, and redo what you used to do. The advice, the direction, the counsel of the Lord Jesus. Number six is an appeal. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That's in all of the letters. And finally, there is some sort of promise or assurance. And that's to the one who overcomes, I will give this or I will do that or they will sit on with me on my father's throne or I'll give them a white stone with a name on it or they'll walk with me in right or whatever. There's all different sorts of ones. And just in terms of being observe, observing patterns and things, in the last two, the appeal and the assurance, he who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Those who overcome, I will do this. In the first three letters, that's the order. But in the last four letters, that, that order is reversed. Now, why would that? Well, I don't know yet. I haven't found out. But that's one of the patterns that happens, and it would be, there'd be a reason for it. The last thing I want to say in terms of just quick background to you is there is another pattern. And this is a typical New Testament um, issue or style of writing that they loved in the ancient world. It's called, it's a chiastic structure. A what structure? A chiastic. You don't have to know that word, but it means it's an X shape. And it's, <clears throat> if you look at the seven letters, then letters, I'll do it this way, one to seven are similar. They're on the outside. 
And then those two and six, there's something similar about them. Letters three and five, something similar about them. And number four is the one in the middle. And a chiastic structure usually emphasises what is in the middle. You are, your attention is being drawn to that. Well, that's Thyatira in these seven letters. And Thyatira, if you look at it, it is the longest letter. It has the shortest words of affirmation and encouragement. And it has the longest correction of things that they are doing wrong. That's one of the severest of the letters. And it's right in the middle. And what's interesting is the two on the outside, Ephesus and Laodicea, they're the furthest from Pergamum, which you'll understand in a moment why that's significant. But they both have a similar problem. They're both lost their first love, they lost their zeal, they've become lukewarm, they're complacent. The next two in, numbers two and six, both of those are suffering churches and both of those receive only encouragement and there is no words of correction to them for both those in this chiastic structure that it comes together. So I just inform you of that and encourage you to make a study of that and read this text very carefully. Because then the point becomes, well, Lord Jesus, what are you saying to us? Where do we fit? Because these seven letters are written for the church throughout time. There is a belief, but it's a wrong belief, that these seven letters are written for the church in seven dispensations, seven periods of time. That The letter to Ephesus is the letter to the first century. That's the first hundred years, the apostles. That's them. The second letter is written for the next 200 years, the next couple of uh, centuries and so on. The third letter is for the next period and so on. And through the Reformation and through the Middle Ages and then all the way down to the seventh letter, which is us. We're in the final seventh stage of church history. You know, I don't, it's not true. It was only invented about 150, 200 years ago at the most and it's written from a Western perspective. It's not written from a global or a biblical perspective so it's a dispensational thing which I don't think anybody should pay too much attention to it they're very ingenious they're very creative in some of the insights they provide but at the end of the day it doesn't stand up to close examination so the seven letters are written by Jesus and so they get the book of Revelation and they read oh, what is Jesus going to say to us the church of Ephesus but they would have also said what it, heard what he said to Smyrna and Pergamum, Thyatira and Sardis and Philadelphia and Laodicea. They would hear that. And after Thyatira, you know that one in the middle, the fourth one, the longest one, the one that gets the worst criticism? Imagine you're the next church. Ugh, what's Jesus going to say to us? They heard the whole lot, just like we have heard the whole lot. And we're supposed to, and we're supposed to evaluate he who has ears to hear, listen. What is the Spirit saying to the churches? What is there in here that is relevant for us? Because while the dangers might be different, different things happening, false teachers or you know, demonic influence or sexual immorality or whatever else could be going on, there is something that is common for all of those churches and that is there is a tendency in this fallen world for something to divert us from our mission and from the person of Jesus. There is always something to divert us off course. It could be persecution that scares us, or it could be worldliness and compromise. It could be all sorts of things. But the common thing is to get us off track, to distract us to spiritual battle. And in one of these letters, Pergamon, 
It's even identified that that's where Satan's throne is. That's interesting. I spent some time thinking and meditating on that one. Satan walks to and fro throughout the earth. There is a spiritual enemy, a spiritual evil one, Satan. But he's a limited fallen angel. He can only be in one place at one time, just like you, just like me. He doesn't have a physical body. He can manifest physically, but he's a spirit being. He's an angel, a fallen angel, which means if he's in Runcorn, he's not at Mount Gravatt. If he's in Sunnybank, then he's not at Druvale. If he's in Australia, he's not in India. If he's in Bangkok, then he's not in America. He can only be in one place at one time, but he moves. Well, just like anything else, this particular area had to focus for the Lord Jesus, so this place had a focus for Satan. And in Pergamon particularly, it says Satan's throne is there, and that's where he resides. He was living in Pergamon in the first century. That's where he was located. So you could encounter, imagine, all sorts of the demonic influences uh, the false teaching as well as the sexual immorality and all other sorts of things that were going on. And the Roman worship, the Roman Caesar worship, all dovetails then together. The interesting thing is this. Pergamon's in the north and the churches that are then close to Pergamon around them are the ones influenced by, you look at the letters, uh, the false teachers, the sexual immorality, the compromise that was going on, the Christians there were tempted to, can't we just go and bend a pinch of salt and just say Caesar is Lord? You know, we don't have to mean it, just say it. Can't we compromise like that? That's those churches around there. As you move away from that, the furthest two churches away are Laodicea and Ephesus. And they're the ones, not with necessarily the false teaching, they're not the ones being tricked and tempted by uh, sexual immorality, they're the ones who have become comfortable, complacent, they're the ones who are just drifting spiritually. Satan hasn't got to worry about them. That's our problem. The problem of affluence lulls us to sleep spiritually. And that's certainly what was happening in Ephesus and in Laodicea. So we're to read the letters and listen. Lord, what are you saying to us? And this was certainly Ephesus. Let's have a quick look at it. It was certainly a very privileged church. Because just like Satan had his eyes on that particular area, so did Jesus. And over the decades, the Lord Jesus had sent significant Christian leaders. You'll know them. In the book of Acts, we read about this guy called Apollos, a mighty preacher of God's word. He came to Ephesus, was preaching there. Aquila and Priscilla, you would have heard of them. When they Jews, when they got kicked out of Rome, they came to Ephesus. They teamed up with Apollos. They're part of the leadership of what's going on in Ephesus back in the 50s, 40s and 50s in AD. The Apostle Paul came there in the 50s and in fact stayed there. He didn't do it anywhere else, but he stayed there for three years preaching God's word. And out of Ephesus, the word of God sounded forth, went up all the river valleys and everywhere else and other churches were planted and started, Colossae and Hierapolis, probably even Laodicea across the way. Apostle Paul spent three years there. After he left, then a guy by the name of Epaphras started some churches. And eventually, towards the end of the century, even the Apostle John came to Ephesus. And just as John was instructed by Jesus to look after his, uh, his mother, Mary, so one very early church historian tradition says that John brought with him Mary, the mother of Jesus, that they came together and that she lived in Ephesus. She would have been in her 80s, maybe her 90s. Same with John, around about the same age. There's even a church in Ephesus 
the church of uh, St. Mary the Virgin, I think is the name of it. Um, John came there. So Jesus had his focus upon this very significant area because, because of the trade routes and everything else. Whatever happened in this area could influence the world. And so Jesus is very concerned for his church, his lampstand, to be a true light, shining the truth out to have an influence for the world. All right, well, write to the church, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, the one who holds the stars and who walks among the lampstands. I'm aware of your enthusiasm, he says. I know your hard labour, your work, your toil. I know that you've endured, you haven't given up. And I know that you're enlightened. You've been very biblical and very true. You've discerned error. People turn up and say that they're apostles or they say, turn up and say they're prophets and you've tested them and you've found they're false. It's not true. You've dealt with it. You've been a very strong, loyal, faithful, efficient church. Terrific things are being said about you in the world. But there's something wrong. There's something missing. There's something not right, Jesus says. The love you had at the first is gone. You've forsaken it. What love is Jesus talking about? Well, some commentators, he's talking about love for him, the love of God, that the love they had for him at the beginning has, has cooled and they've become very religious, very obedient, very busy, very active, just not in a love relationship anymore with Jesus. Tick. I think that's correct. Other commentators, no, he's talking about love for one another. They've gone off the boil. That's most certainly probably what Jesus means because um, they become so focused on doing the right things and so focused on truth that sometimes you can become so particular about what is right that you can become reasonably harsh with people. We see it even today. You don't abandon truth, but you must maintain a loving attitude towards others. It's that balance. And you can't love God if you don't love one another. What's the obvious thing from the world? They'll know you're my disciples by your love for one another. And the Ephesian church seemed to have cooled in their love. They were a very neat, proper, efficient church, it would appear. They were like a beautiful, pristine house. Nothing out of place. Except Jesus said, it's not a home. It's a place for a family. It's a place for people to come together and to find truth and love and acceptance. That's what I want. Third commentator says, no, no, the love they lost is their love for the sinner, the love for the person outside. They've lost their evangelistic zeal. They've become so inward-looking and focused on the truth and everything else, they've forgotten about their mission. Well, I don't think... My, my view is, I don't think you have to make a choice. I think they all three go together. And John, in his first letter, 1 John, he will talk these first two together. You can't say you love God and not love your brother. You can't say you love your brother but not love God. They go together. And if you love God, then you will have a care and a compassion for lost people. If you don't have any evangelistic zeal, if you're not concerned for lost people, there's something wrong here. Because he does. And if you're in tune with him, you will. Okay. So Jesus says, if you don't fix this, I'm going to shut you down. Because the light that you're shining to the world correct theology and correct truth and doing things efficiently and effectively it's all looking great and terrific but it's not the light that I want to shine in the darkness that's part of it but you are missing this part and that's significant fix it or I'll close you down how do we fix it? well do these three things repent 
What were you like before? Remember that, he says. Take the steps and actions to remove from your life whatever hindered it. If you became too busy, well, cut back. And redo the things that you did at the beginning. Remember, repent, and redo. Go back and do it again. Return to your daily times with him of reading your Bible, of praying, of seeking his face, of trying to please him. Please note, Jesus does not say, remember the feelings you had at first and get the feelings back. doesn't say that. He says, redo what you did at the first. And when you redo the things you did at first, the feelings will come. The other will follow. Redo. What did you do when you first became a follower of the Lord Jesus? Read the Bible a lot? Used to pray a lot? Used to be at lots of Christian activities and events? Used to be so focused on learning as much as I could? Redo. Do it again. Join us, connect group. Get back into God's word. Be held accountable for it. Well, did they listen or did they get snuffed out? Well, I'm delighted to be able to say they listened because in the next century, there is a guy by the name of Ignatius who lived a thousand miles away at a place called Antioch and he wrote a letter. He wrote it to the Ephesians and in that letter to the Ephesians, he commends them. He commends them for their um, orthodoxy, for their uh, sticking to the truth. He commends them for not denying the faith, for their martyrs, and he commends them that they have a reputation for being a loving church. They listened. They got it right. And they continued to get it right for the next three or four hundred years because in 431 there is an ecumenical council in Ephesus. So they listened and the church continued until eventually through the course of time in history the church is no longer there because Ephesus is no longer there. There's no people there. There's not going to be a church there, is there? But they listened like we need to listen to. So what does all this mean for us? Well, very simply, this. Let me try and finish quickly. Time is gone. Notice that the Lord Jesus first reveals himself to his people and then he sends them. First he reveals who is he, what's he like, chapter 1. And then he sends a message. And he wants us to get on with the job of his mission in this dark world. Be the light that he wants us to be. Jesus is still in the midst of his church. He hasn't abandoned us. But we do need to listen to him. Nothing escapes his notice. Nothing. Not the good things we do. Not the bad things we do. Not the bad things that happen to us. He notes it all. He's observing and he's watching. And he wants us personally individually to be responsible for the choices that we make to get our priorities right to get our love right to walk in obedience with him harmony with each other there's so much teaching so much many lessons to learn from all of the seven letters so i commend that exercise to you read through the letters read through the book of revelation and listen lord what are you saying if the shoe fits wear it let's pray Thanks, Lord, that you again gave us your word. Can you help us to carve out time in our lives where we make it a priority to read and to listen to what you, Lord Jesus, want to say to us, what you want to say to the church? That seems to me to be the most important thing, that we listen to you and that we listen in such a way that we do the instructions that you pass on to us. Lord, help us to love each other 
to be united together, to be committed to your mission of reaching out to lost people and to walk day by day in love with you. This is your desire and our prayer and we pray in your name. Amen.